Hi, I'm Alyssa. I'm a student at UniSQ. And one of the big things that has helped me as a Christian is reading the Bible on campus with one of my friends. So let's read the Bible together today. I'll be reading from John 4, chapter, oh, John chapter 4, verses 1 to 39. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, have you, no you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will come, come in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her jar of water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Don't you have a saying, it is still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Thanks, Phil, and thank you, Alyssa, for reading. Um, as Phil mentioned, my name is Michael. Um, for those of you who might not know me, I'm on staff with Teen Missions and one of the members of this church, and I'm excited to be unpacking God's Word with you today. And to get us thinking as we start, we're actually going to take 30 seconds to watch an iconic ad. So... This works. Hopefully. Audio is not working. That's all right. We'll keep moving. All right. So as some of you may have recognized from the brief ad with the audio not working that I don't currently have time to problem solve. Um, that was an ad for Snickers, right? And if you've heard Snickers, you know what their slogan is, right? Does anyone, can anyone tell me the Snickers slogan? I don't know the ad. I remember. I hear mumbles. You're not you when you're hungry. All right? That's their slogan. And it makes for some memorable adverts and some entertaining adverts, but there's truth in it as well. Food is a really big thing for us as humans. We often structure our days around it when we're having lunch or breakfast or dinner. And people's moods can definitely be severely affected by a lack of it. And to be fair, it is important for us to stay alive. But at the same time, it's not the be-all or the end-all of life. And sometimes we can get caught up in being so distracted by food or other routine things like that that we can miss what's really important and what will hold eternal significance. And we're going to see that unfold in the gospel reading today that we had from John 4. We're going to see as well how it's still true for us today. We'll be jumping around a bit, but if you've got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to start there for now. And there's also a bit of a guide on the handout and bulletin you would have got at the start. We're going to be exploring what Jesus is doing here in John 4. How he's guiding us to look up from the immediate worldly concerns that surround us to see the work of eternal consequence that he invites us to join him in, the drawing of people from every tribe and every nation to himself. Before we get too far into that, I'm going to start in prayer. Holy Father, thank you for this morning and that you've gathered each of us here today. I pray that you would um, be present in this place with your spirit as we sang before that. It would be guiding the words that I speak, that there would be your words, and that um, these hearts would be soft, and that uh, the message that you have today would be what comes through. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what does it mean for us to look up? There's a part in John chapter 4 where Jesus exclaims, Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. I love to unpack that with you now. Jesus is saying these words to his disciples. 
If you remember from the passage, they've just returned from going into town to buy food. They hung on to that. And while they've been there, a Samaritan woman from that town was drawing water from the well where Jesus was. And he's talked with her. And it might not seem like it at first glance, but it is radical that these two people have talked at all. There's an immense divide of gender, ethnicity, and social standing being crossed here. This is a Jewish man and a teacher willingly talking with a Samaritan woman. You know, how outrageous. But Jesus sees something in the woman that we can only try and guess at from this passage. Because whether she openly admits it or even realizes it, this is a woman who is looking for life, for something more. Notice she is alone at the well, traveling there in the heat of the day. And they, women would tend to understandably come in the cooler morning. So there's a likelihood that she is socially outcast. And as Jesus reveals later on, she has a messy, disreputable past with a string of ex-husbands. And she is a woman who has fallen short, who is lost, who needs hope, who, whether she realizes it or not, is desperately in the need of the living water that Jesus promises here. And as they've talked, she has come to believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, come to bring redemption and restoration. The one who came to fix the inherent problem of sin that all humanity carries. The sin found in all of us, all of us choosing to turn away from God and follow our own will. The sin that separates us from the God who created us, that brings destruction and leads to death. Jesus came to pay that penalty that for all who look to him, who believe in and who follow him, they might have new life. And ultimately, that's our story, not just the Samaritan woman. Because we too have felt the shame and the weight of our mistakes. And regardless of our social standing, the size of our family or our bank accounts, we are people who were created for relationship with God, who fall short and sin time and time again. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have found forgiveness and restoration. As a church, we gather as broken people who have been redeemed and restored by a gracious God. This same message of restoration is what the Samaritan woman, in her own way, has come to know. She has believed Jesus. She's gone back into the town and she has told the townspeople the good news and they're starting to come out and see for themselves. And so remember, like I mentioned before, you have Jesus' disciples who've just returned from this town and come to Jesus. And Jesus is talking with them. He's definitely been focused on the physical task of hand, of filling their bellies. They come back and maybe Judas is nibbling some KFC. Peter's like, hey Jesus, I got you your happy meal. Or I don't know, what kind of fast food do you think Jesus would have eaten? Like maybe he's a Subway guy or he gets two fillet of fish and he breaks one in half and gives thanks and Anyway, regardless, his disciples have missed something. You remember, it's all these townspeople who are now coming out to talk with Jesus because some random Samaritan woman just couldn't help but tell them about him. And so Jesus says to his disciples, Do you not say, there are four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. 
see that the fields are white for harvest. He wants them to see what's happening here. There's a juxtaposition of temporal needs, earthly fixations and daily rhythms, versus the callings of eternity and the things that really ultimately matter. Because while Jesus' disciples had been fixated on food, the physical things, he wants them to see the spiritual harvest. He wants them to see that he is not just a teacher. He is the one that means Samaritans can become true worshippers of God too. And see in verse 39 that many of them came to believe in him just from this encounter. Jesus does not want his disciples to lose sight of who he is and what that means. He has come that the far off might be drawn near, that even the worst of people might be welcomed with forgiveness and grace. Jesus is drawing people to himself, all kinds of people from all cultures. And this desire for people to come to know him, to know fullness of life through him, hasn't changed. The last words in the Gospel of Matthew are famously known as the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He has taught his disciples, and similarly, we have the gift of being taught through his word in the Bible. He promised to be with them always, and that promise is true for us as well. That's why we've been given the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us to encourage us and sustain us and equip us to be witnesses of him. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations. But today there are over 5 billion people in the world who are still living separate from this merciful Messiah. And not just that, over 3 of those 5 billion are classified as unreached. And unreached means that there is little to no Christians there. Little to no churches and Bibles. Little to no access to the truth at all. And this is not just a number. These are 3 billion individual people like you, like me, like the Samaritan woman, who are desperate for life. There is such a great harvest that is still waiting for us to look up. In Matthew 9, 37 to 38, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And this message was true then when Jesus spoke it, and I think it is perhaps even more desperately true today. The God we worship is still the Lord of the harvest, and these fields are still so white for the harvest, and the work is so few. As we listen to Jesus, we should be regularly coming before God to pray that these people would come to know life, the life he freely offers, that they would find relief from their physical suffering, praying that God would be raising up and equipping and guiding people to share his love with the nations. 
And as we do that, we should be considering how we ourselves might be the answers to those very prayers. How God might be leading us to step out and share him with the person next to us or on the other side of the world. And to rejoice in how God is inviting us to participate in this mission. But so often for all of us, this doesn't happen. And why? Well, I think it comes back to what Jesus is trying to address in John 4.35. Because he's trying to target that in his disciples. So let's look at the first part. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? And there's maybe a couple of different ways we can approach this, but I think the main point is comparing the physical with the spiritual. Now, I don't know if any of you have done much planting or harvesting or gardening or anything like that. And I hadn't before um, last year when I came up here and was doing a gap year kind of internship program with Teen Missions. And as part of that, one of the things that we had to do at one point was have a little veggie garden. And so we were given the space and we were given some different resources and told to research it and plan something. And to be honest, I had absolutely no interest in doing this at all. Like, I just had so many other things, and I could not be bothered, and I did not care. But I will tell you that once I put those seeds in the ground, my interest was about 100 times greater. And that I was suddenly like, oh, like, I can see this now. This is exciting. Something could happen. And if I'm honest, that did wane over time. But regardless, the point stands. We are excited and motivated by a physical harvest. And if you have done gardening, I'm sure you would have found the same. Or imagine a farmer who's looking out at like a field of wheat or something that's ready to harvest. And someone asks him, all right, are we ready to start this harvest now? And the farmer says, oh, that's all right. Like I only only enjoy the planting part and the growing part. I don't care about anything else. That's ridiculous. What kind of farmer are you? That's not how we work as humans. Jesus shows here that he recognizes how motivated we are by the physical. To his disciples coming back with bread, he says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Or in other words, think about how excited you are by a physical harvest. You plant looking forward to what you will reap. Why is there not that same anticipation and eagerness for a spiritual harvest of infinitely greater importance? You recognize the ripeness of the physical harvest. Why do you ignore the obvious spiritual harvest. And the harvest waits, but yet a ripe harvest like Jesus talks about carries with it serious urgency. Think of a physical harvest. When it's harvest time, you can't just say, I don't really feel like it at the moment. Just give me a month or so. You know, it isn't the right timing for me. I'm just not really feeling it at the moment. Because in a month or so's time, you don't just have a harvest. You have a field of decomposing rot that's no good to anyone. And so, look, I tell you, Jesus says, lift up your eyes to the fields and see that they are white for the harvest. I think that one of the biggest struggles that we have as a church today in approaching this great commission of Jesus is by seeing it as an optional optional calling for some rather than as a command for all. The same way that some people might say that some of us are called to be ministers, like Phil, and some are not. 
So then they would say that, well, some of us are called to share the gospel and some of us are not. But I don't think that's what Jesus means here. And it might be helpful to think about it like this. What would happen if we approached some of the other commands of Jesus as something that only certain people were called to? You say something like this, like, whoa, you're one of those people who doesn't commit murder or adultery? That's so cool. I mean, I could never do that. I'm just not that kind of Christian, you know? That's just not the calling God has given me. Or maybe, yeah, I know there are some people who are called to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, but that's just never really been something that God put on my heart. I mean, totally, if I heard him telling me that that was his will, then sure, I would, but... But for the moment, I just don't think it's right for this season. And that sounds ridiculous, right? Completely ridiculous. But that's the exact kind of language people use when talking about the Great Commission. But just like in the examples above, it's not an optional calling. It's a gracious command. It's not a matter of, have I been called? to participate in the Great Commission? You know, have I heard an explicit voice come down from heaven to tell me? It's that I have been graciously commanded to participate in this great work that God is doing. And what is the role that he has prepared for me to fulfill? And if that's so, then, well, where does that leave us? What does it mean to be obedient to the command of the Great Commission then? And first of all, I want to be really, really clear that I'm not saying that to be a real Christian, you have to sell everything you own, give to the poor, and travel to the other side of the world. I want to be really clear about that because that is not what makes you a Christian. All that can ever make you a Christian is what Christ has done, not anything you have ever done or could ever do except put your faith and trust in Him But what I want to invite you to ponder is what you would do if you did hear Jesus calling you, telling you to participate in his mission in some radical way. Say that as you read his word, you felt that you were led to sell what you own, to give it to the poor, and to relocate. And that probably isn't the exact message that Jesus has for you. But I want to challenge you to consider if you're ready to come before him with a blank slate. To say, Jesus, I trust you and I love you and I want to live for you. And I know that you are infinitely wise and whatever you have for me is far better than my own plans and desires. I want to come before you with a blank slate. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. I want to listen, and whatever you tell me to do, I want to be obedient to that, by your strength and by your grace. Are you willing to do that for the sake of this gospel? So let's think just really quickly, well, what is some of what the Bible says? Well, there's what we've looked at in John 4, or consider Christ's desire for passionate prayer and devoted workers in Matthew 9. Look at his great commission at the end of Matthew. Look anywhere in the Bible and see this overwhelming, compelling 
astounding, miraculous narrative of God and what he has done and is doing in restoring people to himself. Here, his command for you to participate in this glorious story and follow him. Because that is where we will truly find life. Not by relentlessly pursuing what our flesh craves, but by obediently following our gracious God, knowing that he will equip us as we abide with him. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul considers himself blessed to be able to proclaim the gospel. He says, although I am the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's not an uncomfortable weight or an anxious struggle. And it's something he delights in because he knows how good it is. That's literally what the word gospel means. In Greek, it's euangelion, good news. Good news, the best news ever that God loves you and he loves the world and he wants you to love the world too. And Paul knows that it's not about his own efforts, not his eloquence or charisma or lack thereof. He is a jar of clay, a vessel for this glorious treasure. He writes in Acts 20.24 that he considers his life worth nothing to him. If only he may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given him. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Are you willing to put aside your life in obedience for the sake of the gospel? To consider it worth nothing compared to the glorious task of proclaiming the gospel of God's grace. And take a moment to consider how much value do you put on your life, on your possessions, on your family, on your status, so on, compared to the value that you place on the gospel? Because this will show in how you live. What do you prioritize in how you spend your time? What motivates you? I don't want to tell you to try harder and to work harder and just to let go of all the fun things in your life. That's what I'm trying to do, I promise. But I am wanting you to earnestly consider your willingness and readiness to be obedient to our loving God. But how, how do we do that and why? Well, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 15, and Paul writes, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live, for them, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. By being compelled by Christ's love, that having died with him, you should no longer live for yourself, but for him who was raised again. And I pray that you would be willing to look up and to see the need. Be willing to lay down your life at the feet of our loving Savior. And I know that this carries a lot of weight, and so I want to share a passage that I find really, really encourages me as I think about mission. 
It's from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 9. Paul writes, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. It's neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Brothers and sisters, we are co-workers in God's service. Remember Matthew 9, Paul knows who the Lord of the harvest is. He doesn't look to his own efforts, what he has done or achieved, or for that matter may have failed in. He doesn't because he knows that it is entirely about God and what God is doing. Paul has looked up. He has seen Jesus drawing all people to himself. And he has willfully accepted the invitation to join in that great work. You have been commanded to participate in this same great commission. Please do not miss out on the joy of obedience to this command. And please do not feel ashamed if your role does not seem as fancy or prominent or anything else. It doesn't matter if you plant, water, or harvest, or even if you're digging out rocks and sowing fertilizer. It may be that you have someone come up to you and ask, what is it that you Christians believe? You know, tell me the gospel. I want to hear it. But it might instead be that by your persevering patience and graciousness, somebody comes to see that there's something different about how you live, and maybe, just maybe, those Christians aren't so bad after all. Or potentially it's just listening to somebody's story, hearing their beliefs and struggles, and sharing a parable of Jesus with them. There are so many possibilities. We all play different roles, often at different times. We are co-laborers in God's service. And this is His ministry, and He lovingly chooses us to accomplish it. How, how amazing is that? It's not about how gifted or talented or clever you are. It's not about how hard you work, and it's certainly not about how good of a person you are. It's simply your willingness to be humbly obedient to the God of the universe, the Lord of the harvest, to lay down your life so that you can ultimately find it. What a joy it is we get to be vessels of this good news for the world. One of the really beautiful things about church is that we gather here from all stages of life. And some, like myself, are maybe still looking to afford to the future very much for where God will be leading us as we live. And some of us are right in the midst of it, packed with busy work lives and children to care for. And some of us are further toward the end of that journey, <clears throat> having lived so much of it already. But whether you're hearing it for the first time or the hundredth, the gospel is still immensely important, transformative, relevant, and powerful. And if this gospel, the good news of Jesus dying for you, is new, or even just the weight of it, you want to share that or learn more, then I praise God for that. And I ask that you would please talk to Phil or somebody like that after the service and tell them. But if you're somebody who I think, like many of you, would say that they have known the gospel for a long time, then I would challenge you to consider how well you do know it 
if, that, if someone came up to you on the street randomly and just asked, what's the gospel? What would you say? Would you be ready to share it? And that leads me to the last thing I want to leave you with to encourage you. What could it potentially look like to look up practically? Because maybe it is studying and becoming familiar with understanding and speaking about the gospel. Or maybe it's using a resource like Joshua Project's Unreached of the Day app or website to regularly intercede for unreached people groups. Maybe it's researching specific ministries or people groups or mission agencies. Maybe it's seriously recalculating how you budget so that you can be giving sacrificially to organizations who support indigenous believers who struggle. Maybe it's finding opportunities to volunteer and serve in your local community. Maybe it's none of these. But quite likely, it is something of infinitely greater value than we could possibly comprehend, and certainly far more than our own strength would enable. And so what do we do when faced with a world of urgent physical and spiritual need? We can look up. We can see what Jesus has done, is doing, and has promised to do. And we can find peace as we walk in trusting obedience with our loving Savior, empowered by his strength and motivated by his grace. And as I conclude in prayer, I invite you to take a moment to really consider what it means for you to come before God with a blank slate. And be prepared to look up. And for the glory of his holy name and for the proclamation of his good news unto the ends of the earth. And so now I pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord of the harvest. You are the one who, through what your son has done, is graciously drawing all people to yourself. Thank you that you love the world and that you love us. Thank you that you have chosen us to be your ambassadors in this world. And Lord, we we are still human and we are so easily distracted. But I pray that through the work of your spirit, you would be guiding and equipping us that we might be obedient to you. That through us, others may come to see you and know you. In Jesus' name, amen.